Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. This episode of Demystified was made possible by our top-tier patrons, Phil Dixon and Anushka Maiden. If you want to support the show from as little as £1 a month, head over to Patreon and look for Demystified Podcast, or just follow us on Twitter at demystified underscore pod. It all helps the show out. And now, back to the regularly scheduled programming. The 17th of January. 1912. Five haggard men march through ice winds on hard, cold ground. They've trekked for miles, hundreds of them, over this harsh terrain in a race against time. The prize is the ultimate achievement, immortality of a sorts in the history books, and names as household words. These five men would achieve that, although under less auspicious circumstances than they'd hoped. The team has faced incredible hardships already. Their chosen pack animal fared badly, and their starting destination, though conventionally wise, has cost them precious time. To make matters worse, their dedication to the scientific cause has weighed them down in literal rocks. These fossils will be significant in geological history, but for the time being, they seem like a load of dead weight. They'd foreseen a grim portent of what they would expect to now find at their destination the day prior, through a telescope, a flag waving in the distance. This far from civilization, from any other humans, it could only mean one thing. Still, hope persists that it may have been a mirage. By the end of their journey, hope is lost. The five men arrive at the foot of the tent with a handful of select items. A letter addressed to the King of Norway, requested to be personally delivered, as though salting the wound already. Some supplies, a token of goodwill from one explorer to another, first place to second, and a flag fluttering above the tent, a Norwegian flag. The five men now look northwards. At the South Pole, every direction is north. A quick check of their location reveals the bearing to be true, but their homeward trek will be harder than the outward one. Not only are they thoroughly demoralized, but they're hard hit on the conditions. Tired, frostbitten, no pack animals. This leg will be do or die. One month earlier, the 14th of December, 1911, a celebratory day for the five men who've done the impossible, something no one in history has ever done before. The Norwegian team has beaten the odds and made it to the South Pole. Their leader, however, has mixed feelings. He writes in his diary, quote, Never has a man achieved a goal so diametrically opposed to his wishes. The area around the North Pole, devil take it, has fascinated me since childhood, and now here I was at the South Pole. Could anything be more crazy? End quote. A strange mood to overtake such a momentous occasion, but he and his crew will know what they've done will go down in the history books forever. And, misremembered, 
You see, the reason the Norwegian leaves the letter for his king to the Englishman to deliver is that he knows that they have the better telegraph, and controlling the narrative is important. More important, perhaps, than the achievement itself. He's already in hot water. As his diary indicates, he didn't even want to go south, he wanted to go north. A claiming, though possibly fraudulently, of that achievement by two different Americans leaves that dream in ruins, so he made the best of a bad situation by using the resources he'd indebted himself to accrue to go south, to have something to show for his efforts. But his going south was a real controversy. You see, he hadn't told the Englishman he was going to, and leaving it so late to do was considered unsporting. Not only was there the chivalric concern, fears that a race could start would endanger the lives of both groups, and they may take unnecessary risks to claim what would ultimately be a meaningless achievement if it cost both of them their lives. As it turns out, the beleaguered Britons would never make it back to send that letter. Robert Falcon Scott and his four men, Edward Wilson, Lawrence Oates, Henry Bowers, and Edgar Evans, would all die on the march back. That their names, more so in some circles than the man who had actually claimed the poll first and returned to tell of it, are the ones that people remember. Why is that? That man, by the way, Roald Amundsen, if it wasn't painfully obvious, also reached the North Pole and traversed the Northwest Passage, the Wayne Gretzky of polar exploration, to use a tenuous metaphor. Well, a hundred years of writing and rewriting of narratives surrounding the whole affair, from the planning stages to the personal lives of the men involved to the work of other historians since, every inch of the race at the South Pole has been worked over and over again, creating several layers of mystery to unpack. So it's finally here, ladies, gentlemen, and distinguished listeners, the moment you've all been waiting for. Today on Demystified we tackle the race to the South Pole, Amundsen and Scott. Well, we've arrived at the big one. We've got two more episodes of this season, plus a themed bonus episode, and they'll all be worth it, I promise. But this is the one that you've all been expecting and anticipating, as the narrative that's been building this whole season spills out in dramatic fashion. A race on the ice for king and country, a battling of leadership style and expertise, the fleet-footed Amundsen versus the stoic Scott. It's been told and retold a thousand times, and that has muddied the waters considerably. We'll be delving into the history first before cracking open the historiography to discuss why it is exactly that if you ask the average person to name a polar explorer, many would say Scott before Amundsen, whether that phrase or any criticism heaped on both men is actually warranted, and how, if at all, we should really be assessing these two expeditions. So let's begin with the long-awaited Amundsen bio. Roald Amundsen was born in 1872 in what was then the Kingdom of Sweden-Norway, but in the Norway part. He was from a maritime family with most of the men working on ships or being captains or sailors of some stripe. His mother, however, did not envisage that life for her son. She knew that the wife of a sailor was lonely, fearing the worst the sea can throw at them. So at her behest, he studied to be a doctor, but his heart was never in it. As a boy, he'd grown up reading the stories of Franklin's lost expedition, the men who went looking for them, or those who tried and failed to conquer the frozen north. He declared to himself that he would be the one to do it, to succeed where they'd all failed and make the Northwest Passage by the sea. So he studied medicine until his mother died. At the age of 21, he dropped out, and he was glad of it since he hadn't much aptitude, and he took to the sea. 
After first attempting a ski climb of a mountain that went badly, an early attempt to broaden his skill set perhaps, in 1894 he got his first sailing gig, ordinary seaman aboard a whaling ship. He took that vessel like a duck to water, far better at it than either mountain skiing or medicine. He rose quickly, with many a good word being spread about him, as well as his bold plans and ambitions. Then in 1897 he gets his first big break, our first episode, the Belgica Expedition. It's Amundsen's trial by fire, as first mate of that expedition he works alongside Frederick Cook to keep things afloat when de Gerlache and the others fall ill. Here he learns lessons. Firstly, fresh meat contains enough of whatever cures scurvy, spoiler alert, vitamin C, to keep you alive. Secondly, listen to the people who know what they're talking about. Cook recommended the meat and de Gerlache ignored him, and de Gerlache only survived his near-fatal bout of scurvy when Cook made him eat the fresh meat. It pays to listen to the guys who know their shit. His return from the Belgica expedition gained him some clout, but not nearly as much as he'd wanted. To make a real name for himself, Amundsen knew he'd actually have to set a record, do something that no one else had done. His mind turned back to his old favourite, the Northwest Passage. I've talked about it enough this season and previously, so you all know that by now, in the 19th century, the Northwest Passage became a forbidden zone. Four of the ships that went looking for Franklin, who died along with all his men, got stuck. The passage was a pipe dream. But this was the 20th century, the heroic age. It was time for people to step up to the plate and make history, and Amundsen thought that too, so he put into motion his plans. First off, Amundsen wanted to avoid the mistakes that Franklin had made. Later mapping of the waterways of Nunavut revealed many shallow inlets and small waterways, so instead of taking two ships with over 120 men, he takes one small fishing boat with six men. He names it the Gyoa. He knows that he won't be able to take as many supplies in so small a ship, but here comes part two of the plan. He intends to learn how to live off the land in the Arctic, like Cook knew how to do and use that to stay alive. He knew from stories that when the Franklin men tried to survive there, there were too many of them, not enough game to feed all of them. Six men would be a far more inviting proposition. He also intends to learn from the locals the tricks of the trade, the Inuit. We've talked before about the mixed opinions toward the Inuit of polar explorers. Most of the veterans respect them, but their respective societies back home couldn't hold them in any deeper contempt. In the wake of the Franklin expedition, it took over 150 years to find the vessels, in part because the stories the Inuit told were ignored. Charles Dickens summed up the view of the Inuit from a civilised perspective when he described them as, quote, a gross handful of uncivilised people with the domesticity of blood and blubber, end quote. Vivid image from Charles Dickens there, but they survive in the Arctic, but the pride of Britain failed miserably, and Amundsen can see that. They know how to work with the land rather than against it, and that's not just some patronising metaphor, it's a mentality thing. The Franklin expedition and those like it treated polar exploration like a siege. De Gerlache did too. Your boat is the castle and you hide inside until either you win or the ice does. Amundsen, by contrast, thinks there's more to it. The Inuit don't hide from the snow, they use it to make their shelters. Their little kayaks can go further than a steam-powered ice-breaking whaler. If the so-called civilised world has all the answers, why can't they succeed? Amundsen then takes a training voyage in 1901 on the Gyoa. He wants to make sure he knows how to manoeuvre it when the time comes. He gets it refitted with extra ice plating. He knows he'll spend several winters in the pack. He also gets a small motor on it, for insurance. He gets lessons in adapting for magnetic shifts from the German scientist Georg von Neumeyer, and he signs on a small crew. First officer Godfred Hansen, a Dane. Second officer Helmer Hansen, no relation. Anton Lund, a sealing captain. Peter Ristvedt, an engineer. Gustav Wieck, his assistant. And Adolf Lindstrom, the cook. 
Amundsen gets his first taste of one of the major pitfalls of Arctic exploration in the late planning stages. Creditors. He's badly in debt. There are two versions of the story. Some say Fritjof Nansen agreed to cover the costs, while others say he actually left for the passage as his creditors were coming to repo the Gyoa. With his crew, he sets up the Northwest Passage on the 16th of June 1903, and by October, she's reached King William Island. Now, Amundsen makes his first big play here. Whereas Franklin went north around King William Island, and there he got stuck and died, Amundsen went south. Historians speculate that Franklin's ships were too deep of draft to go down that narrow waterway, but Amundsen's ship could traverse it just fine. Either way, he gets himself frozen in. He has learning to be doing and will be at this place now, known as Gyoa Haven, for the next two years. Although his crew were pretty furious at the prospect of three years in the Arctic, Amundsen insists on staying that extra year. He does his learning with the Netzelik Inuit on all aspects of Arctic survival. He learns, for instance, that the hydrophobic, lightweight fur of the caribou keeps you warmer than wool. In fact, it's one of the warmest natural substances there is, as the hollow hairs trap air within them. He learns that you sleep naked in a fur sleeping bag because your body heat creates the air pocket. He learns how to use dog sleds and sees how well they perform on the ice. The Brits' preferred method of man-hauling looks practically Stone Age compared to the Inuit sledding. Amundsen was not the first who had done this. People like John Ray and Fritjof Nansen had paid their dues and learnt their lessons. But when it comes to the race, which we'll get to, don't worry, it's a pretty major factor in not only why Amundsen won, but why he survived. Eventually, they go forward and they get stuck in the ice for the third winter, but by that point, they'd actually completed the passage. Amundsen skied 500 miles to Alaska to telegraph their success. Vik died that winter of an illness, but the rest of the crew got into San Francisco on the 19th of October 1906 and received a hero's welcome. In the intervening time, Norway had actually become independent from Sweden. Amundsen learned about this and got a congratulatory telegram from his new king, Hekon VII. So Amundsen's a hero and a major sensation, and has completed the first of his checklist of life's ambitions. In the meantime, another man has worked his way into Arctic history. We did his bio last episode, but Robert Falcon Scott's discovery expedition got back in 1904. Since then, he'd been living it up as a hero of British polar exploration and restarting his naval career. Shackleton's attempts to outdo him notwithstanding, Scott was enjoying married life on top of all of his fame and glory. In 1907, he wed an artist who he'd met through his newfound high society connections. Everything's coming up, Scott. But Shackleton had done something few had anticipated. He'd managed to get within spitting distance of the pole. This got the Admiralty jumpy, because it meant that it would only be a matter of time before somebody got the chance to put a flag down on the southernmost point of the world, and the top brass expected that flag to be a Union Jack. Scott has his own personal beef to settle, too. He was none too pleased with Shackleton's supposed betrayal, whether or not that opinion was merited. This heroic age wasn't all that heroic after all, apparently, and if he wanted to get his aims accomplished in his part of the Antarctic, he'd better get his skates on and do it. After all, better an honourable man like he claimed the prize than a cad like Shackleton. So he'd taken an admiralty commission to get himself stationed in London, whereupon he was fairly easily handed the command of the next pole expedition, the Terra Nova expedition. The planning of Terra Nova was amidst a flurry of activity from around the world. The Japanese had an expedition in the works, which would be the first major non-European expedition, stay tuned for the bonus episode, and the Australians under Douglas Mawson were planning their own trip, stay tuned for the next regular episode to hear how that goes. Scott had heard something about Amundsen, but everybody knew that Amundsen only ever cared about going north. He wasn't competition. The Terra Nova team was varied. 
Not a Navy man, as you'd expect, but a huge array of scientists from all sorts of backgrounds, as well as some army men. Captain Lawrence Titus Oates was chosen to represent them as Scott. They'd even listened to Fridtjof Nansen and brought a ski instructor, although few of the men of the expedition actually knew how going in. Funding was private, little involvement from the Royal Geographical Society and Royal Society. Sponsorships and brand deals helped out, but fundraising continued en route to the Arctic. This also affected the goals. The RGS had hoped that science would trump jingoism, but as Clements Markham noted, Scott had the pole bug. He wanted that prize for himself and for the British Empire. Transport was a little trickier. The Terra Nova was fine, flying a Navy ensign meant that Scott could use his favourite Navy discipline, but the rest was a mixed bag. Dog sleds and motor sleds would be used, but ponies were the main thrust. Unfortunately, Captain Oates, who would be their handler, wasn't around for the purges, and the guy who that task fell to knew almost nothing about horses. We'll put a pin in that for later. Now, ponies are all well and good, but dog sleds are unreliable, though Scott admitted impressive in good hands, and mechanics couldn't be trusted. So Scott decided that man-hauling would be needed. No animal or machine could make it up the Beardmore Glacier. Or so Scott thought. As stated above, the goal of the expedition was explicitly the pole. Scott said to the subject, quote, The main objective of this expedition is to reach the South Pole, and to secure for the British Empire the honour of this achievement. End quote. Others had their own ideas. Edward Wilson wanted to continue the study of the Cape Crozier penguins, and Victor Campbell, one of the few good skiers, wanted to get a whole load of overland exploring done and up the coast. But since that was the main mission statement, the public would want nothing less than a British flag flying over that great southern continent. It didn't matter if he couldn't enforce anything, it was the equivalent of planting the American flag on the moon. No matter what anybody else does, you were the first. Scott, along with the total of 65 men, set sail on the 15th of June 1910. Well, Scott doesn't, he's stuck back home on business, but he'll take a faster ship later to join them. In Melbourne, however, he receives a telegram from Amundsen that changes everything, and might even determine the rest of his life, as well as its eventual end. So what's Amundsen been up to? Well, he's messing around with a plan to use Fritjof Nansen's old ship, the Fram, to sail across the North Pole. Fram had been a custom commission for Nansen designed to be the perfect polar vessel. Hulls reinforced with rare South American wood for that indestructible finish. A round shape that made her slower in the water but better at avoiding the ice and more comfortable in the long winters. Fully fitted and refurbished, she'd seen Nansen through his 1893-96 expedition to the North Pole almost totally unscathed. In 1908 he submitted his plans to the Norwegian Crown and Government, who loved them. Nansen had given the ship and the money was forthcoming. Soon, the North Pole would be the achievement of the century, and it would be Norway's victory. A five-year drift in the ice, allowing for maximum scientific study and the best shot of drifting over the pole. What could possibly go wrong? 1909. Shackleton comes back from furthest south. Amundsen's got a lot of respect for Shackleton, calling him the Nansen of the South, which is high praise coming from him. Scott announces his plans for going to the South Pole, but this doesn't concern Amundsen. He's got bigger, more northerly fish to fry. So Amundsen puts together his crew. Olav Bjarland is a pinch hitter. He's a world champion skier who's also got carpentry skills, big into dog sleds, and is very much on the same page as Amundsen. Helmer Hansen signs on again, and they pick up Sverda Hassel, a dog expert. He's only supposed to go as far as San Francisco, but he ends up going a hell of a lot further than that. Thorvald Nielsen is the second in command, and their Dr. Hjalmar Gjertsen isn't actually a doctor. He gets a crash course before setting off. 
Adolf Lindstrom rejoins, as a cook is always a valuable commodity. Oscar Wisting, a naval gunner, is taken on and off recommendation by a friend. He's apparently a real jack of all trades. One unexpected take, however, is Hjalmar Johansson. Fritjof Nansen asked Amundsen to take him, as too much time away from exploring had led Johansson to the bottle, and since Nansen has done so much for him, Amundsen feels like he can't refuse. The preparations are thorough. Amundsen is perplexed by the fact that the British don't see value in sled dogs. He takes a hundred Greenland sledge dogs, the highest quality available, strong, dependable, fast on the ice. Contrast that with Scott's ponies, who are long in the tooth. Amundsen spent two years designing, testing, and modifying custom ski boots for the expedition. The rest of the outfits are from the Arctic, fashioned in the Netzelik style from reindeer, wolf, and seal skin, as well as other fabrics. The tents are specifically designed to be minimum hassle to set up, and the skis are extra long to avoid crevasses. Recalling the near disaster of the Belgica, Amundsen then packs a load of pemmican, a food of Native American design made from dried meat and berries, as well as loads of books and a gramophone to help stave off that winter boredom. He also plans to kill and eat seals and penguins regularly to make up the fresh meat rations. Just as everything looks set for the grand adventure, disaster strikes. Robert Peary and Frederick Cook are fighting over who got to the North Pole first, but both men claim it, and Amundsen's dream of being the first is in tatters. This spells disaster for the expedition. Science be damned. If the novelty of the North Pole isn't there, then the funding is going to go dry. If he was going to put this expedition to good use and not ruin his reputation and his credit, he needed a change of plan. So, he decides to go south. That South Pole is now the last unclaimed prize in polar exploration and there's nothing else for it. There is the matter of debt, of course, the old seagull around the neck. Armstrong has mortgaged his house and he's tapped out. The Norwegian government isn't fronting any more cash. If this goes badly, he's bankrupt. Amundsen doesn't tell Scott. Why? The early British tellings chalk it up to Norwegian perfidy, but there's a better explanation. Awkwardness was one. It would and did seriously piss off the British public that Amundsen would try and race Scott when Scott had made his announcement well in advance, and perhaps if the British pressured them enough, the Norwegian Parliament would withdraw their funding. Funding was the other matter. Aside from the former issue, the scientific plans were all meant to go north, and if he changed tack for seemingly no good reason, then those private donors might get cold feet. Only two men knew with the change in plan, his second-in-command and his brother. Scott didn't know, which made it even worse because Scott had given Amundsen specific equipment, expecting him to go north to get simultaneous readings. When Scott telephoned to ask about that, Amundsen refused to answer the call. The trip would be risky. The new route only had one port of call, Madeira, and from there they'd go straight south, avoiding arousing suspicion by going to the usual stops of Cape Town, Auckland or Melbourne. Their intended destination was the Bay of Wales, 60 kilometres closer to the pole than Scott's plan of heading to McMurdo Sound. On the 9th of August 1910, Amundsen departed for the South Pole. By this point, only four others knew of the change in plan. Terra Nova had set out nearly two months earlier, but was going much slower. Scott was still fundraising. The mood on Fram was tense. The crew couldn't make sense of why they weren't following the plan to go north, and why Amundsen and the officers were being evasive. When they arrived in Madeira, he informed them that his plan was to go to the North Pole via a detour of the South Pole. He sent a telegram ahead to Melbourne, and Scott was expected to get there by October. It read, quote, Beg to inform you, Fram proceeding Antarctic. Amundsen. End quote. That was it. No reason, no objective. 
Scott knew when you read it, though, that Amundsen was going for the pole, and Amundsen had felt guilty about it. He asked each man if they were happy to go south, and they all said yes. He wrote a personal letter of apology to Fridtjof Nansen, explaining that the loss of the North Pole would have tanked the expedition. The response to Amundsen's plans going public was bad. Nansen forgave him, and even approved, but the public in both Norway and Britain were hostile. The British in particular were outraged at this perceived betrayal, and old Clements Markin was beside himself with anger. As mentioned before, the reasons for the anger were threefold. Number one, betrayal of the original objective. The funding he got from the Norwegian government and public was for an Arctic expedition, not for Amundsen to chase whatever fleeting ambition came into his head. The second was romantic. Scott had stated his intent and given equipment to Amundsen on the understanding that he'd go north, and now he'd backstabbed him? The third was practical. It was now a race. And when people race each other, they make silly mistakes that can have very serious consequences. Fram, however, wouldn't know of the response for some time. They were on their own, and by the 14th of January 1911 they'd reached the Bay of Wales. Scott and the Terra Nova got to McMurdo Sand around the same time, early January 1911, at a place called Cape Evans, after the second-in-command. They built a hut in which they'd spend their first winter. More awkwardness ensued, however. Victor Campbell had taken Terra Nova for a sail to scout the coast while the hut was still under construction, and who should happen to be in the Bay of Wales but Roald Amundsen? Amundsen tried to be courteous and hospitable to Campbell, but he politely declined the offer. As nice as it was, it would have boded poorly for his return, and it did anyway. Scott's initial reaction upon hearing this was to think about rushing over to Amundsen's camp and settling things mano a mano, but he ultimately decided on a calmer option. Quote, the proper, as well as the wiser, course is for us to proceed exactly as though this had not happened. To go forward, and do our best for the honour of our country without fear or panic. End quote. Amundsen set up his base in the aptly named Flamheim, and both teams now set about the depot laying. This is important for later. Basically, they're making advanced journeys along the intended route, laying supplies for the actual run saves room on that trip by planting them ahead of time and you construct temporary rest stops. Scott's depot laying goes badly. The ponies don't fare so good, and Scott and Oates disagree on things. Oates didn't want to use the snowshoes, which slowed their progress, but Scott didn't want to shoot and eat the weaker ponies, meaning the eventual depot, called One Ton Depot, is 30 miles short of its intended location. Of the eight ponies that started the depot laying journey, two made it back alive. Amundsen has a better time. The dogs fare very well and the supplies are laid in good order. But it's not all a rose garden though, as Johansson complains often and loudly about their equipment. Amundsen files this away in his mind. He was a tough love kind of guy. He didn't take kindly to anything he perceived as a threat to his authority, which could be so much as a dirty look. That next winter was planning and experiments. Scott's crew launched several overland expeditions to the north and the west to make scientific readings. Wilson's western expedition was aimed at studying the Cape Crozier penguins, and it was a hell of a journey. It took them 19 days to travel 60 miles. In normal conditions, you could do that in 20 hours. Temperatures dropped as low as negative 61 Celsius. Blizzards wrecked their shelter. And one of the three on that trip, Absley Cherry Garrard, would later describe it as the worst journey in the world in his bestseller of the same name. The Northern Party collected geological samples and faced similar pitfalls, the worst of which, aside from frostbite and dysentery, was a blubber-fueled stove in close quarters. Amundsen, however, was restless. 
He got worried that the British motor sleds would be too effective, that that would get them the win. He spent the winter having his men prepare and upgrade their equipment, as well as planning to leave the minute winter ended in late August, despite his crew's reservations about it, and the temperatures being as low as 58 below. They tried to leave, but they found it too cold. As soon as the temperatures were warm enough, a balmy 27 below, Amundsen set off on the 8th of September 1911, leaving only Lindstrom the cook behind. Two days later, Scott revealed his plans for the march south. Scott would go in stages. The sledges, dogs and ponies would take them to the Breardmore Glacier. From there, the dogs would be sent back, the ponies shot for food, and three groups of 12 men, four apiece, would ascend the glacier. Two groups would peel off to lay supplies, the final four-man team would make the pole. The dog teams would then rejoin the homecoming polar party to resupply them. Amundsen's early start had been a false start. Four days later he was back in Framheim, having been turned back by the temperatures dropping. Johansson was not happy. He questioned why Amundsen was so obsessed with beating the English and had risked all their lives by starting early when they knew it was a bad idea. When the decision had been made to turn back, Amundsen had sped off with Visting and Hansen, leaving the rest of them to travel at their own pace. Johansson was one of the last two back. His dogs had suffered and his sledmate Christian Prestrud had bad frostbite. A major argument kicked off. Amundsen questioned his lateness and Johansson scorned Amundsen's leaving them behind. This was the final straw. Johansson got dropped from the pole team. The Norwegians made their proper start on the 19th of October. They made good time. An incident with the crevasse notwithstanding, by the 17th November they had reached the foothills of the Transantarctic Mountains. This was a major departure. Scott had aimed for the Beardmore Glacier, which had been scaled before, last time by Shackleton. A longer route, but more sure. Amundsen was determined to cross the mountains, an untested and dangerous route, but one that, if successful, would shave a lot of time off the journey. This, plus a closer starting point, would clinch victory. If it worked. The dogs turned out to be clutch in that element. They proved more than capable of hauling up the mountains, reaching an altitude of over 10,000 feet. Though seven had died so far, of the 45 that made it, only 18 would go to the pole. The rest shot for their meat. This was particularly sad for the men doing the shooting as they'd grown attached, but not least for the dogs. It wasn't just the men who ate dog meat that winter. They reached the South Pole on the 14th of December 1911. The actual journey wasn't that eventful for them. They spent the next three days taking scientific readings and verifying that they'd actually made it. They planted a flag, named the surrounds the Huck on the Seventh Plateau, and after leaving a tent with supplies in a note for Scott, they began their homeward march. Amundsen's new goal was to beat Scott back to civilization. He'd won the pole, but now he needed to win the publicity war that would surely follow. Progress was mixed. They limited their speed to preserve strength, and while skis made going downhill fast for the skiers, the sledders had a hard time. On the 25th January 1912, they'd reached Framheim at around 4 o'clock in the morning. They'd taken 99 days and covered nearly 2,000 miles, but had actually beaten their expected time frame by 10 days. 11 of the 52 sled dogs made it back. From here, Amundsen didn't want to stick around. Five days later, they departed for Tasmania, and on that voyage, they drafted their telegrams of success. We'll check back in with Amundsen later. What happened to Scott? Well, he was having trouble early on. The motor sleds broke down very quickly, meaning the early probing efforts took longer than expected. The reason I wanted to conclude Amundsen's trip was to give context for this. Scott's ascent of the Beardmore Glacier wasn't until mid-December, by which time they'd already started on rations that were meant for the glacier portion, and unbeknownst to them, Amundsen had already reached the pole. 
Scott decided his polar party would be five men. They'd planned and calculated for four. Meant more weight needed to be manhauled, less proportionally spread, more fuel to be burned. On the 9th of January, Scott's five-man team reached Shackleton's old record, but scarcely seven days later they sighted Amundsen's flag. They reached the pole itself on the 17th of January 1912, by which time Amundsen was well on his way home. The mood in Scott's group was expectedly poor. They'd suffered so much hardship for nothing, to be beaten by a dishonourable cheater, they thought, and now faced the long march back, manhauling, with nothing to show for it. The homeward journey started pretty well, they appeared to be making good time. Three weeks of progress stalled, however. Edgar Evans started to flag. He and Oates were suffering from frostbite. When they got to the glacier descent in early February, they had to take some time to rest up. They located some very interesting geological samples, plant fossils, that would help to prove the theory of continental drift. But these fossils, though scientifically enormous, would be a 14 kilogram addition to be manhauled. Evans deteriorated at a rate of knots. His hand, injured, wasn't healing, the sign of scurvy, and his frostbitten feet meant he kept falling over on the ice, hitting his head. He was drowsy and unsteady, and then he collapsed and he died on the 17th of February, 1912. On the 27th of February, Scott reached the point where they were to meet the sled dog teams, carrying those crucial supplies, but they got there three days early. The mood was even lower, the loss of Evans and no signs of a dog sled team souring things. And the dog teams didn't show. The relief efforts were a complete shambles. The first set of relief supplies to be delivered to one-ton depot weren't available. Cecil Mears, the man who had chosen the low-grade horses, flouted orders to supply the one-ton depot. He had clashed with Scott earlier and arrived back at Cape Evans later than expected and was concerned about missing his ship out of the Antarctic should he follow through. He'd resigned from the expedition formally and he wanted to go home. Edward Atkinson was now in charge, a role he was unaccustomed to. He'd used up valuable time and energy unloading fresh supplies from Terra Nova, and when he went with the team to meet up with Scott at their agreed latitude on the 13th of February, they were delayed by bad weather. When he and the Russian Dmitry Gerov arrived at the Hut Point, Tom Crean, Shackleton's long-time collaborator, told them that Lieutenant Edward Evans was in serious danger. Evans and Crean were coming back from the Glacier Party, remember their weird three-tiered system, and Evans was on death's door. Atkinson then decided to try and save Evans, which meant picking him up and hightailing back to Cape Evans and not meeting Scott. Absolutely, Sherry Garrard and Gerov then went on with the dogs to meet Scott, but it wasn't apparent to them how necessary the relief would be. They were told to prioritise keeping their dogs alive over meeting Scott. They got to the one-ton depot on the 4th of March, but failed to go any further due to a blizzard. Back with Scott's party, things were getting worse. The depots that had been laid had insufficient fuel for the stoves, and an unexpected cold turn added to the frostbite which slowed their progress. As manhauling became difficult due to both the cold and the new icy conditions underfoot, it was likened to walking in a desert. Scott's party wasn't using fur, they were using wool. When you exert physically in wool, you sweat, as with fur, but that sweat seeps into the wool and then freezes over you, drastically cooling you. They didn't have sled dogs, they were manhauling. They didn't have fresh meat for killing and eating, the dogs were provided. Their provisions lacked vitamin C, they became malnourished. Oates' left foot was unusable due to the frostbite. Their lack of fuel meant they were cold and hungry and couldn't boil water, but their slow progress of five miles a day, whereas Amundsen had been making at least 15, meant that their lack of fuel was all the more of a problem as they needed to get to the next set of depots. 
By the 10th of March, they realised the dog teams weren't coming. On the 16th, Scott wrote a letter to one of his financiers, Sir Edgar Speyer. It was a letter of farewell. He wondered whether he'd been abandoned by the dog teams. He decided to assume not, though the doubts plagued him. He tried to think of how they'd get out of this situation, of where he'd gone all wrong. Oates was done for. His hands and feet were useless, and we get to the part that everybody knows. Allegedly, he walked voluntarily into a blizzard to his death, with the words, I'm just going out. I may be some time. He sacrificed himself so that he wouldn't slow down the others. Some, including the TV comedy Red Dwarf, have speculated that Oates' sacrifice wasn't so intentional, that the others might have gone the way of Franklin on him. We don't have any evidence for this, though, and it doesn't make that much sense. I mean, pragmatically, sure, but by that point, it seems from their diary entries that most of the men had accepted that they were going to die, so they wouldn't have murdered Oates for food. Their speed did pick up a little without Oates, but it was too little too late. Scott was now flagging. They dug in on the 20th of March due to another unexpected blizzard. Eleven miles short of one-ton depot. Each day they tried to crank out those last 11 miles, and each day the blizzard refused to subside. Nine days later, we get Scott's final diary entry. Quote, Every day we have been ready to start for our depot 11 miles away, but outside the door of the tent it seems a scene of whirling drift. I do not think we can hope for any better things, now. We shall stick it out to the end, but we are getting weaker, of course, and the end cannot be far. It seems a pity, but I do not think I can write more. Ah, Scott. Last entry. For God's sake, look after our people. End quote. We don't know exactly when they died, but by that point, even if the blizzard had subsided, they would have not had the strength to make it. A healthy person on good ground could make 11 miles in four hours with a quick break in the middle. By that time, though, Cherry Garrard and Gerov were long gone. On the 10th of March, their own supplies were dwindling, and they needed to leave some for Scott, so they turned for home. They had contemplated heading out in search of Scott, but they knew that the lack of dog food meant they would need to kill the dogs should they go that way, and that would contradict the order from Atkinson. Though Atkinson would tell him he'd done all he could, Cherry Garrard would forever be plagued with the question of whether or not he could have done more to save Scott. By the 30th of March, Atkinson had decided that temperatures were so low, 40 degrees below, that no further progress south could be made, even if they wanted to. By this point, they'd all agreed that Scott and his four men must be dead. There's no way they could survive. Meanwhile, Amundsen had returned to Tasmania and broadcast his victory to the world. I should mention, quickly, that two other expeditions went off to do their own research while Amundsen was at the Pole. We shouldn't ignore them just because they weren't the main event. One group even met Nobushirase in the Japanese polar expedition, but the language barrier prevented any actual real dialogue from the two teams. George VI of Britain and President Theodore Roosevelt both sent congratulations to Amundsen, and in Norway the national flag was flown all over the country. Historians note that there was an undertone of muted chill within the overall happiness. In Britain, some newspapers made note of the bravery of the Norwegians, with many noting the size of the achievement. Ernest Shackleton was very pleased and extremely impressed. The Royal Geographical Society, however, were furious. They were still angry that Amundsen had tricked Scott and the British by changing his plans and had stolen the achievement that was to be theirs. Lord Curzon, Argius president at the time, slighted Amundsen when they met by giving three cheers to his dogs. Even in Norway, there was a little bit of doubt. Almost everyone believed Amundsen and he had the findings to back it up. But 
there was the worry that the embarrassment of having him undercut Scott would overshadow his achievements. Back in Antarctica, the Terra Nova party overwintered, and by spring a decision needed to be made. Campbell was north with his own party who would need rescue, but Scott's failure to return meant that he was in dire straits. A vote was taken, they decided to go search for Scott, and on the 12th of November 1912, they found the tent. The sight was devastating. The three frozen corpses of Scott, Wilson and Bowers. Their records were read, the tent was collapsed, and atop it a cairn was erected. They looked for Oates, but they only ever found his sleeping bag. Campbell took over the expedition and erected a memorial at Observation Hill with the words from Tennyson's Ulysses. To strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. First sent in a coded message, the news broke in February of 1913. Amundsen's reaction was horrified disbelief, and the British public entered their own form of mourning. It was during this mourning that the narrative ended up being written. Scott became the martyr. His sense of fair play was contrasted by the already circling talk of Amundsen's cheating. Though men on Scott's own team, such as Apsley Cherry Garrard, freely extolled Amundsen's skill as an explorer and his good decision-making, the wider public was far more taken with the narrative of the underhanded Amundsen and the noble Scott. Scott manhauled like a manly man. Amundsen shot his own dogs and fed them to each other like a savage. Amundsen was a professional explorer, This might seem stupid in the modern day to criticise, but in upper-class British society in the Edwardian era, being a noble amateur was far better than being a lowly professional, some lower-class yob who has to work for his money. This is ignoring, of course, the fact that the only reason that Scott got into polar exploration was to help support his family financially. When Scott's journal was published, those final words, take care of our people, struck a chord with the world. Amundsen, the victor, was now stuck behind Scott the martyr. As for what happened next, well, Amundsen continued exploring. The debt would follow him for the rest of his life, as with all polar explorers, but he would achieve both the Northeast Passage and a flight over the North Pole alongside Oscar Wisting in 1926. There's a lot of controversy over the exact priority, but if theirs is taken as the first, much disputed, then Amundsen and Wisting are the first two men to visit both poles, first each. So shout out to Oscar Wisting for being the unsung hero in all of this. In 1928, Italian Umberto Nobile and his crew in the airship Italia crashed in the Arctic while attempting to traverse the North Pole. International rescue efforts were launched, and Amundsen joined in with the seaplane alongside two other men. On the 18th of June 1928, they were never seen again. Some flotsam and wreckage was found, but no bodies. It's assumed that bad weather caused the crash. So ends Roll Amundsen. Died doing what he loved, I suppose. This episode is long enough as it is, but let's dig into the guts of it. Amundsen versus Scott. Where to begin? Well, the Wikipedia page has a surprisingly good overview. I like to do a little bit more research than that, but it's a good jumping off point. Let's start with their objectives. Amundsen's sole objective was the pole. Nothing else mattered. Other observations were undertaken, but it was clear from the very beginning, well, at least as when he told his men, that the pole was the clear and central purpose. Scott's financial backers expected a more rounded expedition. The Pole was his main concern, as well as many others, but they were spread a little bit more on their objectives. We got the base camps and routes. Amundsen was based closer to the Pole in the Bay of Wales, 
and a plant across the Transantarctic mountain range. This route was untested, but shorter. Moreover, though he would face a steeper climb initially, he would spend less time at altitude overall than Scott. Scott's plan was to take the more gradual ascent of the Beardmore Glacier, a longer route, but one that was proven. Then we get to transport. Amundsen took dogs and dogs alone, alongside skis and snowshoes for his men, and his men were well trained in all of those. The dogs provided food for each other, and then the men, and were tried and tested, exceeding expectations in the mountains. Scott had three methods. He had dogs, but as we discussed last time, he was wary of them due to past failures. Because Shackleton had luck with ponies, Scott took them too. But the ponies were poor. Despite having the funds for good ones, Mears had bought bad ponies, and Oates disapproved of the special snowshoes designed for them. Amundsen could feed the dogs, penguins, seal, and each other. The ponies needed specialist feed that had to be brought from the ships. Furthermore, Scott considered the killing of dogs to feed each other barbaric and refused to participate, thus further informing his decision, since that was an inevitability. The motor sleds were the other option. They could have been useful. In the mechanical age that followed, they would do. But the guy who knew how to use them, Lieutenant Commander Reginald Skelton, wasn't brought on the expedition for a very dumb bureaucratic reason. Basically, he outranked the person who was second in command, so he couldn't come. And so his experience with motor sledges, which were going to be a vital part of this plan, was lost. Skiing was another factor. The Norwegian skiing experience, one of the men of the pole was a champion skier, enabled them to keep pace with the dogs and traverse the icy ground faster. Scott had Trygve Gran, a Norwegian skiing specialist, taken on Fridtjof Nansen's recommendation, but skiing lessons weren't made compulsory and Gran wasn't on the pole party. He was the first man to find the Scott party's bodies. Scott's final diary entry interestingly acknowledges the role that prejudice played in the failure of the British to adopt skis. Food for thought. We're not sure about the weather and how it affected Scott. On the one hand, it seems that a 10-day blizzard condemned him and his men to death, and they did definitely experience record low temperatures. On the other hand, Cherry Garrard didn't note the blizzards of the same duration in the same area. The Norwegians laid more, smaller depots and marked them more clearly. Scott's team had trouble finding theirs in stormy conditions. The man-hauling made a serious difference to the chances of Scott's team. Cherry Garrard concluded that the caloric loss from that meant that their rations were woefully optimistic at best, whereas Amundsen's team actually gained weight on their return journey, and a 2006 reenactment of the Amundsen-Scott journeys confirmed this when the British team had to be rescued due to severe weight loss of the crew from the man-hauling on low rations. Scott's rations also contained no vitamin B or vitamin C, the killing of the ponies being the main fresh meat, which was not present when they needed it the most. Amundsen, by contrast, had plenty of fresh meat available in the forms of his sled dogs, who he was more than happy to shoot and eat and feed to each other. We talked about Scott's lack of fuel for warmth, but again, fuel also allows you to melt snow for water. Scott's team was already dehydrated. The clothing made a big difference. Furs worked better than wool, and whilst their bagginess wouldn't have worked as well with walking, Amundsen was skiing and sledding, so it doesn't matter. Plus, the looseness allows for good air circulation to prevent overheating during strenuous activity, whilst the warmth keeps them cosy. Amundsen's better pace allowed them to move at better times of the day, even in total daylight, but the sun was behind them. This allowed them to alleviate the effects of snow blindness, which Scott's team suffered from. Then, of course, was the dog sled failure. Scott's team didn't get that relief they needed, or to poor communication back at camp, and a failure in the chain of command. 
Cherry Garrard got to the one-turn depot early, and without dog food, he couldn't both obey the order to help Scott and keep the dogs alive. Scott's team was carrying heavy geological samples. Trigvay Grand considered those dead weight when he found out. Amundsen's team used sextants to navigate a light piece of equipment in which all of his men were trained. Scott's team weren't particularly trained, some at the last minute, and used heavier, more complicated equipment. Scott switched to the five-man team, changed the dynamics he'd prepared for. More supplies, more fuel burnt on the five-man team, most meagre rations for the three-man returning group who they would depend on for their resupply. Finally, Amundsen's sled setup was more compact and quicker to load than Scott's. Based on all of that, you wonder how anyone could blame Amundsen for Scott's death. Yet people did. And I suppose some still do. Was there any one decisive factor? I think I will directly quote from the wiki on this because I really like it. Quote, The complexity of Scott's transportation plan made it vulnerable. It depended in part on motor sledges, ponies, dogs, and southerly winds to assist the sledges, which were fitted with sails. Half of the distance was to be covered by man-hauling and sails whenever conditions permitted. Scott's daily marches were limited to the endurance of the slowest team, the man-haulers who were instructed to advance 15 miles a day. The ponies marched by night and rested when the sun was warmer. Mears remained idle in camp with the much faster dogs for many hours before catching up at the end of the day. End quote. Scott's plan was too complicated, too over-the-top, too over-engineered, too many chefs. It smacks of Franklin syndrome. Amundsen had a philosophy for leading teams that worked to a T, which was, you only take as many men as you need. Each man has a purpose, which makes him feel included and useful and special, and then you have no dead weight. He accomplished, with six men on a fishing boat, what John Franklin couldn't do with 120 in two top-of-the-line Arctic research vessels. Why? Because you don't need that many men or those bigger boats. His 19 men beat Scott's 65, because when it comes to the final race, it's five men walking against five men. But it's not, because it's five men walking one route versus 12 men in three teams of changing numbers walking several back-and-forward routes. With Amundsen, there was nothing to go wrong other than his party's journey. He'd laid the depots, he'd chosen the route, and he and the men were all together. From there, it was forward-back. The journey was relatively uneventful. Historians have gone back and forth over Scott in the decades. Amundsen's legacy is pretty secure given that he A succeeded and B survived, but Scott is more complicated. Scott was a hero forever from the moment he died, but that heroic reputation wasn't equally spread. In terms of the memorial fund to take care of our people, Scott's family received in modern money around £2 million. Evans's family got around 150000 In the UK alone, no less than 30 monuments were erected. When the film Scott of the Antarctic was released in 1948, it was the third most popular film of that year in the UK. But his legacy would come under fire in the 70s when theory got critical, and that extended to all areas of academia. In the 60s, new access to Scott's personal documents began to shed light on his decision-making skills. In 1979, Roland Huntford wrote Scott and Amundsen, and described Scott as a heroic bungler. It was a serious assault on a man previously thought unassailable. Since then, many accounts have gone back and forward on the middle ground, and that's where the consensus seems to be, at least at the moment. Scott was a good but flawed man. What do I think? Why did Amundsen succeed and Scott fail? Well, principally it comes down to the planning and their personalities in that respect. 
Amundsen was an innovator in the sense that he was willing to try new things and experiment as well as learn. He was autodidactic in that sense, erudite. Scott might have started out that way, but he ended up putting his own experiences far above practical lessons. Amundsen wanted more Arctic experience prior to the Northwest Passage, so he spent two years getting to know Arctic waters. Scott signed up for the Discovery Expedition having never been to the Antarctic before. It's plain as day on paper, in hindsight. Scott was unprepared, and because he was unprepared he tried to compensate by over-planning. Amundsen had the confidence that comes with competence, and made a simple, easy-to-follow plan with as few moving parts as possible. Scott doesn't deserve to be so maligned as he had been, I think, but I'll remind you all of what I said about the price of ambition. Amundsen was lambasted in the press as a man obsessed with the pole, which, to be fair, he absolutely was, but I would argue that Scott was just as obsessed in the end. This was the same guy who got pissy with Shackleton for going into his bit of Antarctica. You're telling me this guy's a paragon of self-control? Scott didn't die alone. Four men died with him. The price of that failure. I'm not saying it was Scott's fault, by the way, merely that it's not as though his death only affected him. His family was well looked after. Edgar Evans's family, though? Hmm, not so much. Amundsen got maligned as the man who would do anything to win. But him and his men got out of there. There was some evidence that Scott and Oates didn't get along too well, so maybe ask Oates's ghost if Scott's fair play mattered in the end when he was walking out the tent. But this was the heroic age. Your heroes needed to be heroic. Even the public back in Norway felt that. That's part of the reason as to why Amundsen never really got that full-on hero's treatment. He just wasn't heroic compared to Scott. Yeah, he won. But if you win by lying to your fellow explorers, skipping town on creditors, and feeding your dogs to each other, did you really win? I suppose it depends on what you consider the values of the heroic age, and whether they're important. That'll inform your answer. Me, I'm Team Amundsen, with the big caveat about the ethical implications of feeding dogs to other dogs for the purposes of claiming the pole. Manhauling was romantic, and like many romantic ideals, it was out of date long before Scott tried it. The lack of skis, the lack of good advice or planning, it's all just too much. I can't see Scott as anything other than a man trying very hard to compensate for poorly made plans with more poorly made plans. Have you had a modern expedition you encountered that sort of resistance just when laying down the depots, you'd reschedule or regroup or adjust. But of course we live in a world with the hindsight that comes from seeing Scott and his men die. With that we close the book for now, at least, on Roald Amundsen and Robert Falcon Scott and the race to the South Pole. This episode of Demystify was written, recorded, and edited by me, Ashley Stars, with hosting from Wizard Studio and music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod, because I am updating it now. Stay tuned for those bonus episodes if you're subscribed on Patreon. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... 
To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hey, are you a super fan of Taylor Swift, Jelly Roll, or Morgan Wallen? Are you that song nerd who likes to dive into every little lyric of every little song and figure out what everything means? Do you want to take that a bit further, though? Because I have a podcast called Songwriter Soup, and it dives into the journey of a songwriter and how those people help craft the soundtrack of your life. I'm Laura Veltz, and I'm bringing all of my friends together to discuss our funny little job writing for all of your favorite artists. Listen to Songwriter Soup wherever you get your podcasts.